So good morning again. My name is Sean, I'm lead pastor here. If I haven't met you yet, and if you're one of our guests here today, we're so glad you're here. If you'd like to find out more about our church or have make coffee with me or one of our staff members, you can take your uh, order of worship here and you can scan this QR code here on the back of the bulletin, and that will take you uh, right to a form where you can connect with me or the church staff and just find out more about us. We'd love to connect with you if you'd like to do that. Also want to let you know that you can use that chair Bible there in front of you to find the, today's passage, and when we get there, it's going to be found on page 728 in that chair Bible. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please do take that one with you as our gift. We'd love for you to have that. And then for our regular attenders and our members, I'd also like to draw your attention to the back cover there. You can see that little blurb about community groups. Please consider joining a community group. Here's how you, you should know if you should probably consider joining a community group. If you're here and you have a pulse, you should probably consider joining a community group. We would love to have you become part of that. You can go to our website there. There's a place to sign up. We have lots of community groups happening. Hopefully, they'll start meeting together in the month of February after some training. It's a great way to make a church like ours come together as the family that we are. So we are starting a new series today on the Old Testament book of Micah. Micah is an Old Testament prophet, and it kind of gets you into the mindset of what Micah is all about, why God has Old Testament prophets. I want to take you to modern day earth, our world right now. Not so common in America. You can find it, but it's very common now in the big major cities of the world. Let's say London. If you would go down to the financial district where all of those people are working in those big high rises doing stuff with money and making a lot of money in the process, I don't understand it, I don't have to, whatever, they would come down during their lunch break wearing very expensive suits because these are very successful people, men, women, and you would actually be able to witness them go into what we might call a convenience store, what in a city they call a bodega, and they would buy a quart of milk. And they would come outside of that store, and next to the opening would be a statue of some kind. And they will open that milk, and they will lean down, and they will pour it in its entirety over that statue. And they will say a prayer asking for success in their endeavors that afternoon. Again, the Christian veneer over America kind of keeps that a little bit on the taboo side, so it's not quite that open, but you can find it, but it's very common in most of the cities of the world. That is what we, from a Christian perspective, would call idolatry, and that is the background of the book of Micah. It is idolatry, giving false worship, giving your mind's attention, your heart's affection, the fruit of your labor to that which is not the one true God. So with that background, I invite you now to turn uh, to page 10 in your order of worship, page 728 in the chair Bible there, as we look at Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. 
What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they will return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before Your Word this morning, a Word of judgment, a Word that perhaps offends many of our sensibilities, Lord, we pray that You would once again give us humility, that we would submit ourselves to Your Word and not submit Your Word to us. We pray that You would give us truth, Lord, for our growth, for our transformation, that we might see you as you truly are. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple, let's call them ground rules, let's say, for coming to an Old Testament prophet. Okay, a couple ground rules. First of all is, grace is not a New Testament invention. I was raised in a Christian tradition that kind of just taught blatantly that Old Testament law, New Testament grace. Okay, no. Grace is in the Old Testament. Grace is in the New Testament. Grace is in the Bible. The Old Testament looks ahead to the promises of God being fulfilled in a coming Redeemer. We in the New Testament, we look back to those promises being fulfilled. We also look to Him coming again. The Old Testament believers, because they looked ahead to something that had not yet taken place in history, here's where it's a little different. They, as a people were in covenant with God as a nation, and so they were liable to covenant curses on their nation for their disobedience. You and I, united to Christ by faith, thanks be to God, we're a new people in Jesus. We're told that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood before Him, and that Jesus has fulfilled all these covenant requirements, and He has absorbed all these covenant curses. And so as we read these harsh parts, let it drive us to Jesus evermore in thankfulness and gratitude that He absorbed this stuff for us. But also, don't just punt it that way and not listen to it. Instead, remember that as a Christian, our eternal salvation is absolutely secure. We can never lose our salvation. Once you're united to Christ by faith, you can never be disunited from Him. And you can sense there's a but coming, right? But we can grieve the Holy Spirit as Christians, with our ongoing sin. And our sin can bring God's judgment in our life and in the life of our church. Even sin that has been forgiven and cast on Christ, we can still disrupt God's best plans for our life by our sin. So we need to take this seriously as we walk through this Old Testament book together. And that gets us to our theme for today. What we're going to kind of orbit around is this. God takes idolatry seriously. Theirs 
and ours. All right, so let's jump in, kind of get to know Micah just a little bit. It, Micah has kind of a heavy sight here we see in verse 1. It's been a time of prosperity for God's people. They had a civil war a couple generations earlier. They split. So Israel was in the north, 10 tribes there. Their capital was Samaria. Judah is in the south. The Levites, as the priests, go in between. So there's 12 tribes there. they got the north and south. The capital of the south is Jerusalem. capital of the north is Samaria. And God sends prophets to both of them sometimes. He sends prophets to one of them. Micah is sent to the south, but he prophesies about the north and the south. And so it's a time of prosperity, actually. It's a time of relative peace. Property values were up. And so you know what happens in those times. People become more and more lax, don't they, about truth, about righteousness, about justice. And into that world, we get verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. It literally says the word of the Lord that was to Micah. Kind of just showed up, and there it was. Micah is not as well known to us as more famous, maybe Hosea you've heard of, maybe Isaiah lots of people have heard of. He's contemporaries with those guys. What's really interesting is unlike those guys, he was famous in his time and he actually got to see success in his ministry. One of the biggest revivals in the Old Testament under King Hezekiah happens because of Micah's preaching. Jeremiah actually looks back and mentions the prophet Micah, and quotes him in chapter 28 of Jeremiah's book. He was a big deal at the time. But ultimately, it wasn't enough. Because what also was going on is that there's this nation to the north called Assyria. They would become an empire. They would invade the northern kingdom, conquer the capital of Samaria brutally, and carry them off to oblivion. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel would be lost to history. Micah ministers in Jerusalem before, during, and after these events, and he warns Jerusalem before it happens in the hope that they might repent and believe. So Micah is a book of judgment. It's hard to walk through a book of judgment, but like all prophets in the Bible, judgment has always got hope in there somewhere. You just have to find it. The book of Micah is also a book of justice. It is the record of the case, you might say, where God is the chief witness for the prosecution bringing a case against his people for their covenant unfaithfulness. So it's, it's a heavy book. It's a heavy sight. But as dark as it gets, hope is around the corner. So the text itself, we jump in starting at verse 2 with, lo, he comes. The, God is going to come himself. He starts in verse 2 and says, hey, listen up, everybody. Pay attention, everybody. The Lord God is coming. Now, whenever you get to the Old Testament, if you notice, you'll see it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In the Old Testament, that's a proper name. That's not just a title. We don't actually know what the vowels are, so we typically just translate it Lord, all capitals. But that's God's actual name. He says, I'm coming. And when he says the Lord God, it's shorthand for the universal overlord. This is where God claims authority over all other small g gods on the planet. This is his sovereignty and his power being proclaimed. And he says, I am coming from my holy temple, from my palace. Micah stands in Jerusalem, points to that building and said, this starts here from that temple. And out of that place, God is going to come and he's going to tread down the high places. Okay, what does that mean? Well, small g gods were up, right? So if you wanted to get closer to them, you would go up on a hilltop. 
So uh, across all, meh, across most hilltops in ancient Israel and Judah were shrines to idols. Think of the little thing we poured milk over in London at the very beginning. There'd be little shrines to idols on most hilltops. So whenever you see the, word, the phrase hilltop in the Old Testament, you need to think a shrine to an idol. So God comes and says, I'm going to squash flat all these shrines to pagan idols in my people's country, in my country. He's going to squash them. Why? What's the big deal? Well, the God's people, those in covenant with him, his people in Jerusalem, had assumed upon God. They expected him to tolerate their sins because they were his people. God would make sure the good times kept going. After all, look, we're Jerusalem. His temple's right there. He doesn't want to live in some trashy, conquered place. So he's always going to bless us. There's always going to be prosperity because God doesn't want to be around poor people. He wants to be around wealthy people. He's going to be in the suburbs, right? So he's going to keep it nice. Just make sure you go there, jump through his religious hoops when he tells you to, and it'll be fine. Just do all the externals, and the good times will keep rolling. And so God sends prophets to speak to his people. Prophets come to the church first. Prophets come to believers, to those already in relationship to God. These are not things, yeah, go out there and get them, God. Tell the world how bad it is. Prophets come to the people of God and tell us how bad we are, where we need to straighten up. And we need that because those those of you who've been around church world, you know, from Genesis, we are wired for law or wired for instruction might be the better way to put it. Do this and you shall live. We want to earn blessing through our obedience, but because of the fall, that gets twisted, and now we assume that we have to placate God to get a good life. We have to jump through his hoops to get him to bless us. You know, he's like a giant genie, basically. We figure out in church how to rub the lamp, and he gives us a good life. That's what the people in Jerusalem were doing. There was no relationship. It was just go to temple, jump through the hoops, get a good life, get God out of the way. But the real stuff that you need help with, well, you got to go to the hilltop for those things, not the temple. See, Micah shows us that true religion, what the Puritans would call authentic faith, true religion comes from our daily faithfulness. It's proved, not earned, it's proved by our daily faithfulness in relationship. So this transcendent God who's so powerful, he's coming and he comes, he cares enough to be involved in their world. He is coming to be involved. And one of the beautiful things about being a New Testament person reading back into this is we know what Micah doesn't know, that ultimately God did come, didn't he? God came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, when Micah is prophesying here, he's ultimately prophesying about the coming of Jesus. But before that ultimate fulfillment, there's also an immediate fulfillment in the nation of Assyria. God is going to mobilize this nation for judgment on his own people. You want, to hear a, you want to hear a scary story about God? It's right in front of us, okay? And it really is scary. Okay, boys and girls who are still in here, I want, I want your help for this, okay? So, anybody know what the capital city of Assyria was? This is like, you get like 50 points to Gryffindor if you know this one, okay? Okay? It's a place called Nineveh. Okay, boys and girls, did God send someone to Nineveh? Anybody know? You can answer. Anybody, did God send someone to Nineveh? Jonah, that's right. God sent Jonah to Nineveh. 
before all of this, God sent Jonah to Nineveh, and you can read it, read it. Jonah's sermon was very easy. It was basically, 40 days, y'all gonna die. And he liked it, he loved it, he couldn't get enough of it. Jonah hated the Assyrians. He was super happy to preach destruction to them. And then, much to his chagrin, his terrible sermon was the most successful sermon ever. This pagan city from the king on down actually publicly, officially repented. And so they avoided destruction. And now guess what? Barely a generation later, because that city wasn't destroyed, they are now a powerful empire, and they're going to be what God uses to squash the nation of Israel. If he hadn't granted them repentance and destroyed them, there wouldn't be a threat from Assyria. Now, Christian, we have a powerful, mysterious, sovereign God. Let's not be so used to him that we neglect to tremble at his power as we worship him for his gracious kindness. He is sovereign over our world, and sometimes he reminds his people of that dramatically. All right, so back to Micah. So Micah so far has been pretty normal when it comes to an Old Testament prophet, right? The audience in Jerusalem has been tracking with him. Yeah, Micah, you tell those Yankees up north in Samaria, God's going to get them. Yeah. And then we get to verse 5. Look with me at verse 5. He says, All of this is for the transgression of Jacob, that's the northerners, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? See, at the second question, they turn from amen to how dare he. Because remember, what, what does hilltop mean? And what does high place mean? Remember? High place is a synonym for an altar to an idol. And what does he call the biggest altar to an idol around? Jerusalem itself. Micah says, God is bringing judgment on y'all. You are idolaters too. Oh, dear believer, as it gets harder to be a Christian in our culture, let's be careful, by the way, the P word persecution does not apply in America. Don't insult our brothers and sisters around the globe ever using that about the inconvenience of being a Christian in America. But as it gets more and more inconvenient, sometimes we might think to ourselves, isn't God going to do something? Why doesn't God do something about this? See, Micah reminds us that when such pressure happens, God is doing something. And instead of looking out there and going, why doesn't God do something? We just go, oh, what is God doing? Because often it's, judgment is about us. It's not about them. Judgment makes us look in, according to Micah. So Micah calls out the capital cities, Samaria, Jerusalem, because this is a theocracy. You can't separate religion and politics. Samaritan worship was completely, totally unacceptable to God. There was a civil war. They didn't want all these worshipers going down to Jerusalem and being part of that culture and giving all those tax dollars down there. So the, the rulers of Israel after the civil war basically went control C, control V on the system and created Samaria. We had their false temple, false worship. Come up here. We'll, we'll, do all, we'll do it all the same way they do it in Jerusalem. It's just a lot more convenient. And God basically said, nope, I don't recognize any of that. You're not worshiping me when you do that. Wholly unacceptable to him. But he didn't just call out those Yankee false worshipers to his southern audience. He looks right at them 
points to the temple and says, that's a high place too. Y'all are idolaters. You are full of illegitimate worship as well. You see, they had put their faith, their hope, and their trust in having the temple. God was with them. Just go jump through his hoops on the Sabbath and we'll be fine. And here's a heart check for us, dear believer. Is God our genie or is he our Lord? Is he a boss to placate or is he a father to enjoy? And you get right down to it. Which one is he? See, Micah is trying to get them to see they've treated him like a, like a genie. He wants them to repent of their own false worship, their own idolatry, because idolatry is a serious problem for God's people. Verse 6 through 7 is full of really intense imagery of destruction. You can sense the palpable anger of God here. Their idolatry, their false worship, God is going to bring destructive judgment for this. Again, dear believer, don't just punt this because oh, I'm in Jesus, I'm safe. We can be forgiven in Christ. We can have our salvation secure, but you and I can fall into worshiping idols. We want to feel important, don't we? We want to be loved. We want to be cherished. We want to be honored. We want to be esteemed, and those wants will lead us into idolatry because ultimately we give our life to what we want. And if that's what we want, we will do whatever it takes. We will give our hearts affection, our minds attention to being esteemed instead of esteeming our Lord. But make no mistake, prophets like Micah remind us that God takes seriously the sin of having any other God. Because God takes idolatry seriously, theirs and ours. So this turns Micah, starting in verse 8, into someone who's sick and sore. Starting in verse 8, we take a dramatic turn. God is no longer, Micah is no longer quoting God, so to speak. Now Micah is giving his own interpretation. Here's his words. Micah himself is mourning. And he's not being a good Westerner like we are, right? Like, yes, I am very sad about this. Notice my stoicism, right? He is an ancient Near Eastern person. He is wailing like a jackal. He's screaming like an ostrich. Okay, so many of you know, uh, I grew up in Wyoming, and I like to go back every summer where my parents live, and I like to like, go do stuff outside in Wyoming. So about three years ago, I'm, I'm camping with my three youngest children outside this national forest, and right before we fall asleep, we hear, probably about a quarter mile off, several coyotes cry out. Now, this is not like it is in the movies, where like the sun is setting, and there's a cowboy strumming along, and a gentle coyote in the background. It is a bone chilling screen that even if you know it's coming it sends shocks down your spine like wow it is scary there's something primal like in your medulla oblongata that gets like it gets you okay so we're, we're going to sleep i hear that cry i'm like okay so i do what a good dad does and i reach in the sleeping bag and yep there's the glock we're good okay so go back to sleep right I wake up two or three times in the night from this bone chilling, and they are closer every time. I think, it's okay. Benjamin and I, as the men in the camp, we did our duty, and we put some liquid um, distractions around the campsite before we went to bed to let them know humans are present. You know, they should be able to smell, should be fine. I wake up, bolt upright, just scared to death, goosebumps everywhere. It's kind of light outside, and it sounds like these guys are maybe 15 yards away, and we are completely surrounded. It's multiple calls. And so I was like, well, it's time to go be a dad, right? Sit up, chamber around, get the boots on, let's go outside, start a fire, and let's reassert the order of the food chain, because clearly they didn't get the memo, right? 
Because it's scary when you hear animals cry like that. And Micah says, that's what I am. I'm so upset. I'm crying out like this kind of scary, bone-chilling animal. Why? Because he cares about his doomed nation. A real prophet of God weeps before, during, and after pronouncing judgment. If you ever come across somebody claiming to be a biblical prophet and you can tell they like it, they love it, they can't get enough of it, they're gloating. They're not talking from the Holy Spirit, just saying. Micah is a prophet of God talking to God's people. And one of the neat things about the church is God has kind of put the church into the world to kind of take up this prophetic role. The way our denomination describes it is we say that the, we have no political authority as a church. Our role is ministerial, which means serving, and declarative, which means proclaiming truth. So part of our role as a denomination, we believe, is to proclaim truth prophetically to the culture. And when we take up our prophetic voice, dear believer, let's make sure we do it with tears and not with gloating. Here's how a friend of mine is a pastor in South Carolina. His name's Rick Phillips. Here's how he puts it in his book on Micah. He says this. He says, people are offended by the Bible's prophetic message, but what if they saw tears in our eyes and a heart that's broken for them? How heartless it is when Christians denounce the sins of the culture but make little effort to point out the way to God's mercy through faith in the blood of Christ. Now, dear believer, as we think of the weeping Micah, I think it's fair to ask ourselves, would those whom we know who disagree with us on very important issues, morality, sexuality, gender issues, would they say that we clearly disagree but we can tell that you weep for us and that you love us. Because that's Micah. He's brokenhearted because he sees there in verse 9, their wound is incurable. It's never a good diagnosis to get. Samaria will be gone, destroyed by Assyria in Micah's lifetime. See, and not only is Samaria incurable, he tells us they're infectious in the rest of verse 9. This plague of idolatry and unfaithfulness has come all the way to Jerusalem and affected, infected them. The evil in Samaria has leached now into Judah. And so the rest of his prophecy is him warning people in Judah, the southern kingdom, about God's judgment on their sin. But notice, even in the midst of calling out their sin, he calls them my people in verse 9 because God is not abandoning them in judgment. They're still his very own people. He wants his people's restoration. God will not let them be utterly destroyed. All right, let's wrap this up. That's Micah. As you go through a prophet like Micah, as you're reading this on your own, hopefully throughout the week, Always look beyond the prophet greater than Micah, the one who would do more than warn and promise. In verse 8, Micah says that he goes about stripped and naked. It's, he's not just using, you know, over-the-top language. It's actually a euphemism in their time for someone who was a prisoner of war. That's what happened to you if you were a captive. You were stripped and naked and dragged off. Exactly what happened to Samaria and eventually what happened to Jerusalem under Babylon a generation later. 
And when you think of those things, think of the one greater than Micah, Jesus, who came to us and identified with us in his incarnation. He was tempted in every way. He walked among us, calling us to repentance, calling us to faith. Jesus Christ accomplished the obedience demanded by God's covenantal standards with his life, and then with his death, he absorbed the punishment for us. He let himself be stripped and naked for us. That's one of the reasons we come to this table. This is the table of Jesus absorbing verse 6 and 7 on our behalf. And so we come to celebrate now, whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, as we've walked through this text, your failures have probably come to mind. Deep down, you know you're not acceptable before this God who's this exacting. Samaria is not the only one with an incurable wound, is it? But even now, I implore you, if you feel that way, repent of your sins. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel and you will be healed. He absorbs that for you. He makes you his own and you can be one of God's adopted children. In the gospel, instead of getting God's judgment, it's as if Jesus comes to us as an orphan and says, you know what? My dad can be your dad too. Come on. Don't you want that? Then place your faith and trust in Jesus even now. Don't wait. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for messages of judgment like this that make your mercy even more profound. Lord, we pray that those of us who've placed our faith and trust in you, that you would call us to a deeper walk, that those habitual sins that tie us down, those common idolatries we engage in, Lord, would you help us to hate them and long to be closer to you. Lord, we pray for those here today who don't know you. That, Lord, as your judgment has been put foremost, that, Lord, people would be drawn to you for mercy and that you would give it to them in Christ. Oh, Lord, would you cause many to repent and believe your gospel even now. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.